This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chepka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Osteoarthritis is one of the most common conditions seen in a primary care practice. And while in most cases it doesn't result in severe disability, it does frequently cause limitations in one's lifestyle. With us today to discuss osteoarthritis is Dr. Alicia Hins, a rheumatologist practicing at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Alicia, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, Dr. Chekha. Let's start by talking about what osteoarthritis actually is. Is it actually a joint disease, a cartilage disease, a little bit of both? So osteoarthritis really is characterized by uh, degradation of articular cartilage, but we really want to think of it as a, a joint disease because there are really many factors that um, can lead to the, the processes that cause more of this articular uh, cartilage degeneration. Um, so, so it really it can affect the uh, the synovial membranes, the subchondral uh, tissue or the joint, the bone underneath. It can cause uh, troubles with the ligaments and really um, the mechanical trauma malalignment. All of this really leads into um, the processes that start the degradative process mm-hmm. of the cartilage. I know we often try to separate osteoarthritis from what we call inflammatory arthritis. So is there really inflammation at all in osteoarthritis? So there is thought to be uh, an inflammatory pathways in, in which um, there can be some cytokines that maybe start some of this process of inflammation. But it is still different from the inflammatory arthritis uh, that is caused by more systemic conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, for mm-hmm. example. Um, even some of the uh, what we call um, inflammatory or erosive osteoarthritis, um, there's still different inflammatory mechanisms that are underlying these as uh, seen by the fact that many of our uh, disease-modifying drugs that we might use in inflammatory arthritis really do not work for erosive inflammatory arthritis, for mm-hmm. example. Okay. Are some individuals prone to developing this? I, I've got mostly an elderly practice, and I've got some patients who have absolutely no evidence of osteoarthritis, and others have pretty advanced disease. So it really is uh, multifactorial. So uh, age, as you mentioned and raise, is certainly one risk factor, but there are many patients um, that are elderly that don't experience some of the severe osteoarthritis. Some of the other risk factors um, probably that we see the most would be obesity. Um, certainly that causes some additional stress on the joints, and if there's any sort of malalignment or anything like that, that can really um, even just cause additional uh, stress on that joint. Other uh, things that we, we have found is that there is a certain um, component of genetics or our heritability of osteoarthritis. So some studies have shown that about 50 to 60% of, of patients with osteoarthritis really do have that uh, heritable component. Mm-hmm. We haven't identified a certain gene in particular that's causative, um, but certainly uh, we do understand that there seems to be some familial risk. Yeah. That, in just my opinion, it seems to be especially true for hand arthritis. I mean, when I see the hands of my patients, they say, oh yeah, my mom had the same exact problem or my father had the same problem. 
is that uh, is that valid? That is valid, and and particularly for hand arthritis or that nodal arthritis in which you're seeing the Heberdens and Bouchard's nodes, um, particularly for women. Uh, I believe that the um, risk factor is, is essentially uh, doubled. If your mom has it, mm-hmm. most likely <laughs> you're you're at increased risk for getting that that really nodal hand arthritis. Yeah. I know we use morning stiffness to often assess patients with inflammatory arthritis, but it seems like some patients with osteoarthritis have some morning stiffness too. Is that is that true? That is true. So um, a, kind of a rule of thumb that we'll use in rheumatology to, to sort out whether it's inflammatory or non-inflammatory stiffness in the morning is about 30 minutes. Now, typically, patients with osteoarthritis, most of the time, if they're telling you about joint stiffness in the morning, it tends to be less than 15 minutes. But certainly, there still can be a little bit of component of stiffness, so mm-hmm. really trying to um, understand a little bit more uh, the duration that mm-hmm. they may experience that symptom for is okay. important. Now, I've got some patients who say that every once in a while their arthritis flares up. Uh, is there a reason for that happening? Is there something that they're doing, or does it just pick a joint and all of a sudden give them trouble for a few weeks? You know, sometimes um, in overuse situations. So uh, patients will say maybe they went on vacation and they did a, a lot of walking that they just are normally not accustomed to doing. So they haven't built up maybe the the muscles um, and and the supportive structures as much. Um, That can sometimes lead to some increase in pain, for example, the next day with Mm -hmm. with a lot of overuse. Interestingly enough, uh, a lot of patients will say the weather changes really seem to flare the arthritis. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's been some research into whether barometric pressure um, has an effect on flaring osteoarthritis this uh this really uh, can be um there's different thoughts in the literature actually or different findings in the literature some say absolutely there is a connection others um, will say maybe there's a little bit of a connection but statistically it seems that maybe there's some additional other factors that mm-hmm. we just haven't been able to tease out um anecdotally i would <laughs> i would definitely say a lot of my patients do say that though yeah yeah, you mentioned with the weather. I've got one particular patient I'm thinking about who um, says he's better than the weather forecasters. And uh, <laughs> he can tell by his joints in terms of what the weather's going to be for the next uh, few days. Well, so is this an, an arthritis that occurs in joints that we tend to use more? So if somebody does a lot of work with their hands, are they more likely to get hand arthritis? Or if somebody does a lot of weight-bearing work, knee or hip arthritis? Or doesn't that quite fit? It's difficult. Um, when we think about uh, weight bearing, you know, if we're, we're thinking about weight bearing, we're talking about knees, ankles. And for some reason, while knee osteoarthritis is common, osteoarthritis of the ankle is not. Mm-hmm. So um, from that perspective, there seems to be certain joints that are just a little bit more prone to, to getting um, arthritis. And maybe that's just the, the mechanical way in which we're, we're loading that joint. In, in patients that uh, maybe have been using their hands quite a bit throughout their entire lives with repetitive uh, work. So um, perhaps um, somebody that's a farmer that is using um, 
their hands and, and repetitively doing certain motions throughout the day. Um, maybe later in life, they might have a slightly increased uh, risk. Mm-hmm. Um, ballet dancers, actually, that's another example. They are ones that maybe have a little bit more osteoarthritis in the ankles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there may be some association there. Um, but again, uh, there's some other things that we just haven't been able to explain yet. All right, big question. Does running cause osteoarthritis of the knees and hips? So elite professional running can increase the risk and and high intensity. And and when we talk about high intensity, um, studies have used uh, 57 miles a week to sort of define that high intensity point. But actually, recreational running, um, in terms of it actually increasing the risks, it doesn't seem to. It actually seems to decrease the risk of osteoarthritis in the future. Hmm. Um, so it, it's it's uh, talking really leads more to that intensity mm-hmm. um, of whether you're more the professional elite athlete. Um, there there may be some increased risk, but the 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 daily person who likes to run for exercise, it seems to actually be a little protective. Okay. I've had some patients who tend to have osteoarthritis of one knee, but not the other. And when I get into their history, I find out that in the past they've had a meniscal tear in that one knee. So does meniscal tears increase your future risk of getting osteoarthritis? It does. Um, that and also um, surgical uh, repair of the meniscus. And even uh, there's been a study that's shown that even a partial meniscectomy um, has less risk than, than a total meniscectomy. Um, other, other surgeries like ACL surgeries, that's another huge uh, you know, risk factor for later osteoarthritis. And ACL tears with a, a meniscal tear actually increases that risk even more. So prior injuries um, really are a risk factor, which is important to think about when um, maybe we're seeing younger patients that are coming in with osteoarthritis, but mm-hmm. they have a history of these injuries as a high schooler, for example. Sure. So you mentioned younger patients. I think we tend to think of osteoarthritis as as a problem that occurs in the elderly. But do you see this or can it be seen in those in their 20s or 30s? So when I start to see osteoarthritis in, in a younger patient, I am starting to think about what are those secondary causes of osteoarthritis. So we mentioned some already, which is joint trauma. So if they have that history of joint trauma, um, then that could certainly be an explanatory factor. But other things um, such as hypermobility syndromes, leg length discrepancies, those are certainly things that we want to assess for to see if they could be contributing. Um, we'll catch a lot of times on on um, x-ray of the hips in particular uh, impingement uh, syndromes um, and that can increase that risk of, of later osteoarthritis mm-hmm. other metabolic things that are less common um, but certainly things to think about would be hemochromatosis uh, Wilson's disease um, uh, diabetes even is, is a risk factor as well mm-hmm. okay when should we advise our patients to consider a total knee arthroplasty? So 
oftentimes, interestingly enough, it seems that patients almost have a sense of, of when they're at that point when they need it. So it tends to be severe uh, pain that is, is very limiting. So severe pain that we're unable to manage um, more conservative mm-hmm. approaches, pain that's waking them up at night or really limiting their function. So suddenly, you know, they're really struggling to go up stairs or walk a block um, that tends to get to that point where we're saying okay we've tried to to do the conservative management um, it's time to to think about considering that knee replacement given the impact on your quality of yeah. life and I think that's been my experience as well patients usually come and say I think I'm ready now uh, it, it it impairs their lifestyle so much that they don't do the things that they want to do and uh, it's not an exam finding, it's not an x-ray finding, it's usually when the patients feel, this is too much of a nuisance, no, I wanna get this done. Yes. And I think the most common thing that patients say after their knee replacement is, I wish I'd done it sooner. Why didn't I have it sooner, yes. Which leads me to this next question. Um, I see a great deal of variability in the x-ray appearance of the knees and the patient's symptoms. So I imagine we don't go just by imaging in terms of recommending knee replacement, it's, it's again, the symptoms that the patient is experiencing. It really is, and sometimes I'll be surprised when I'm assessing a patient because based on what they're telling me with their impairment, the quality of life, the level of pain that they're having, um, maybe failure of some more conservative management, I expect to see bone on bone right. quote mm-hmm. of, of the x-rays and then I pull them up and it's like well you have about mild mild to moderate osteoarthritis per x-rays so right. it just uh, everybody obviously experiences pain differently and experience with pain is different and and, and certainly we don't necessarily see always that that strong yeah. correlation between severity and and symptoms. And I think it goes both ways. Um, I've had patients similar to you described with um, very mild looking arthritis on x-ray, but a lot of symptoms and others that have just terrible looking x-rays bone on bone. And, uh, and they say, well, that's not really bothering me all that much. Right. Yes. And you want to ask, what is your secret? (laughs) Yes, exactly. All right. So let's say a patient has decided they're not ready for surgery. Uh, what are some conservative things that we could do or non-invasive things to treat somebody with arthritis, say, of the knee? Uh, in particular, physical therapy can be very beneficial. And what we're trying to do with physical therapy is really strengthen the quadriceps muscles around that knee to give that knee some support. Physical therapy is also going to assess for other uh, mechanical issues and make any other recommendations that may help um, slow the progression. Mm-hmm. I tell patients, though, that physical therapy is is a commitment and it's a, it's a long-term thing because some will want to complete a course of physical therapy and that's it. And it's really important for patients to understand that they're going to teach you how to do some of these things and how to focus on the muscles that are going to be important to try to strengthen, but it's going to need to be a, become a routine in mm-hmm. order for you to really experience that pain relief. I think another thing I've noted from physical therapy is they can often pick up a leg length discrepancy that has maybe for years gone unnoticed, um, but that may be accounting for why one leg is having more arthritis problems than the other, and they can correct that and um, maybe minimize the progression. Absolutely, and leg length discrepancies that can be uh, affect so many things. Not even you know knees. Then we start to talk about hips, and we start to talk about backs. So catching mm-hmm. things like that sure. is extremely uh, critical. 
So a patient who has arthritis in a weight-bearing joint, the hip or the knee, uh, do we want, and we want them to exercise, do we tell them to avoid weight-bearing exercise or something like walking? Is that okay for them? Walking is okay. Um, there has been uh, Cochrane reports actually looking at this, um, and and walking is um, been shown to decrease uh, decrease level of pain. Um, now, if you have a patient that's that's really not done anything, of course they want to start slow right. and not you know overdo it that first time, or they're never going to want to do that again. But certainly, walking programs can be good. Um, even even um, aquatic programs. If you have a, a patient that just even walking is, is troublesome, then sometimes even some of those programs um, can be helpful. Anything mm-hmm. again that's that's going to help strengthen those quadricep muscles or is going to be um, seen to be beneficial. Okay. One big masquerader of hip arthritis is uh, trochanteric bursitis of the hip. And how would a patient with a bursitis present? compared to somebody who has osteoarthritis of the hip? How can we separate those? So asking the patient actually where the pain is. So patients with trochanteric bursitis, uh, they will often point to the outer parts of their hip that hurts. And really they can almost pinpoint where it hurts and on examination you're going to actually be able to feel on, on the lateral aspect of their trochanter that they have tenderness there. True hip joint pain is is going to present as groin pain. So it'll be a, a real deep ache, and they're going to describe it as groin pain, and you'll know that that's actually true hip joint pain. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, the big way that we tease it out. And, of course, on examination, uh, again, you're going to have a lot more limitations in range of motion, most likely on the on the hip joint or that groin pain, and it's going to reproduce that pain. Mm-hmm. Whereas the trochanteric bursitis, it's, it's palpation of the lateral aspect of that trochanter where you mm-hmm. can really pick out that that's the bursa. Okay. Are there rheumatologic conditions, probably that you see, that masquerade as osteoarthritis? So... Sometimes um, we'll get consultations, uh, particularly for inflammatory OA, to try to tease out whether this is inflammatory OA or possibly um, a different inflammatory arthritis because these joints, you know, they do look inflamed. Um, What will typically help for that, and and that tends to be either inflammatory or away, or maybe could this be a psoriatic arthritis, for example. Um, Because the joints um, in psoriatic arthritis, uh, it affects more of the, or it can affect the distal DIPs just like inflammatory OA can. And so that's probably the one that we would get the most referrals for is Mm -hmm. try to separate that out. Usually inflammatory OA, you are going to see um, those, that nodal osteoarthritis, and then x-rays will have characteristic findings as well Mm -hmm. um, that, that push us more towards that inflammatory, uh, erosive OA versus something like psoriatic arthritis. So that's Mm -hmm. probably the biggest mimicker that we'll see. Okay. And then finally, on management, uh, we talked a little bit about physical therapy, uh, maybe avoiding overuse of the joints, maybe participating in non-weight-bearing types of exercise if uh, weight-bearing hurts them. How about the use of the synthetic synovial fluid? I know this came out years ago, and it was used a lot, and then it was kind of felt not to be all that useful, and now it's being used again. Is the thought that this is helpful? 
So um, at least in my experience, it tends to be patients that maybe have are a little bit more on the mild spectrum, mm-hmm. where um, they certainly don't have severe OA, um, but maybe they've got a more kind of moderate OA that may have a little bit of, of improvements from more the visco supplementation mm-hmm. um, than others. There, you know, on the topic of injections, there was actually an interesting article last year in which um, patients received either a saline injection or an injection with corticosteroids, and they had the same outcomes in terms of improvements. Mm. So, so I think there's still a lot that we don't know yet with Mm -hmm. regards to to really how beneficial injections truly are. Sure. Okay. Well, we've been talking about osteoarthritis with Dr. Alicia Hins, a rheumatologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Alicia, thank you so much for, uh, for answering our questions, and uh, hopefully we can help our patients with osteoarthritis. Thank you so much for having me. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can now access and listen to over 100 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. You can hear us at ce.mayo.edu, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.